Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is a huge honor to speak to him. He is a master of AI, a guru of game design, not to mention an excellent writer who's working on a book at the moment called The Four Swords, A Parable of Leadership, Video Games, and Dead Dragons. I'd like to welcome Paul Tozor. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, Reese. Really good to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this because um, you're a man of many talents. Um, so, and also obviously a writer at that as well. So it's, um, yeah. it's a cool thing to talk to you about. Um, and obviously, cause I only have you for a short amount of time. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover, but I'll start with your, your, your work at retro studios in terms of your AI work, because people say mm. you're, you're noted as the AI engineer, but I'm pretty sure that was vague and you actually did a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just to be clear and give credit where credit is due, there were many people who worked on, on artificial intelligence in the Metroid games. Uh, I didn't do any work on Prime 1. I got on board Retro a couple months after Prime 1 uh, shipped. Uh, so I started on Prime 2. I uh, worked on Prime 2, Prime 3, and um, Project X uh, after Metroid Prime 3 shipped. And then I left about two weeks into Donkey Kong Country Returns. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Alex Quinones, Marco did a lot of artificial intelligence work. He worked on a lot of the bosses as well. Uh, Marco Thrush also did a few, Kai mm. Martin, um, a couple other engineers. So did you get to pick what bosses you worked on specifically, or was it just uh, one of those not things? Really, some, sometimes, yeah, sometimes I would express an opinion, you know, uh, and in one case, the Helios boss on Metroid Prime 3, um, I should say Metroid Prime 3 Corruption. Um, I actually, you know, came up with the whole concept of Helios and designed pretty much all of the attacks and everything like wow. that, all the different forms for Helios. So it was a real honor to be able to, to do that. So, but that was the only one where I can say I've got serious design credits. And, and of course, Mark Pacini and, and uh, Kinsuke Tanabe were also heavily involved in all of the bosses. So, What's the most difficult aspect, do you feel, of like doing AI for for a boss? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the difficulty, so in some cases performance, you know, was uh, was a concern. Um, you know, we had to do a lot of work to optimize certain bosses that were fairly expensive or, you know, scale back the ambitions of the designers in certain cases, um, right? Like I remember uh, Tanabe-san, for the final Dark Samus, I worked on all the Dark Samus battles in Prime 2 and 3. Um, they were awesome, and, by the way. Thank you. I uh, <laughs> appreciate that. Um, yeah, uh, the final Dark Samus battle. So the biggest challenge, honestly, was less, uh, had more to do with the Retro Studios culture and the relationship between Res Retro Studios and SPD Group at Nintendo. I think they've renamed SPD to something else at this point, but that was essentially Kensuke Tanabe and Risa coming in from Japan, you know, um, once or um, once every month or two and supervising the character design. And that would very often end up with a complete redesign of a lot of these boss fights if it was the first time they looked at it. Now with Dark Samus, the Dark Samus battle in Metroid Prime 3, that actually went two complete, underwent two complete rewrites. 
So a huge amount of work got thrown out on that encounter. Um, the first version of that boss fight, I spent about five weeks on it. That was designed by Mike Wicken. Mark Pacini took a look at Mike's work, decided he didn't like it, completely redesigned that. And so that was another four weeks of work. And then Tanabe-san came to town, took a look at that, and he decided he was gonna completely redo it. And now we have, have a totally different boss fight. Uh, that was another six weeks of work, I, I think. Uh, to finalize that. And um, Tanabe-san's initial design, uh, you know, his initial suggestion, I should say, for that Dark Samus battle was to have like dozens of Dark Samuses, you know, all flying around, you know, in the arena at the same time. And we had to explain that having, you know, that many Dark Samuses, you know, the Dark Samus model was fairly expensive. Um, having that many instances of that animated mesh all animating and running around doing different things in the arena at the same time was just gonna be a performance nightmare, uh, especially when the arena itself was already fairly computationally expensive. And um, so we managed to get it down. I think there's three Dark Samuses yeah, that appear yeah. in that entire battle. We're like, okay, we can do three. So we designed it around three. Right. But how come it takes so long before someone uh, interjects and be like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. So you mentioned like, <laughs> like Mike Wicken, what, the original one was yeah. what, five weeks or something. And then somebody comes yeah, in about after five, the five weeks. Five weeks, of, five weeks of work. And then Mark Puccini took a look at it and was like, nah, I want to redo this, all of this. And so I, I noticed that that increasingly happened on Metroid Prime 3, where Mark would, you know, take an increasing amount of ownership of the boss design and just go, this is how it's got to be. Whether you know, to what extent that that was justified, to what extent that was, you know, Mark feeling like this is what he needed to do to get it past Tanabe-san and make something that would be good, or if, if it was actually necessary, I, I don't know, I can't really say, you know, it's hard to test a counterfactual of if that hadn't happened, what would have happened instead, right? How would the boss fight have turned out if it had gone down its original path? And been developed that way i don't know maybe the mm. initial mike wicken design for you know the last dark samus in battle in prime three would have worked i i just don't know because you don't know how it would have turned out in the long run but one of the things about tanabe-san is you know he has an extraordinary ability to you know nintendo designers in general i think um have an extraordinary ability to look at game design and gameplay from a very different perspective from American designers, right? Mm. Um, I can't count the number of times that I would have a finished boss encounter or a boss encounter that I thought was close to finished. We would go into a meeting with Tanabe-san and he would sit down and start playing through the encounter. And after about five or 10 minutes, he would just stop playing and be like, okay, here are my notes and then give us all these different notes of you need this and you need this and change this to this and change this to this. And a lot of it was overwhelming. Many of the things were things that in retrospect, I was like, well, yes, obviously, obviously, you know, there needs to be a telegraph for that attack. We need sparkly particle effects. We need sound effects. You know, when Run just jumps on the platform, we need him to, you know, have these ice balls over his heads. Obviously all that needs to happen, right? But then some of it was just completely out of left field. And, you just had to, you know, humor him, right? And you had to go, okay, clearly he's seeing something that none of the rest of us can see, but, you know, he's been right enough that we have to take his word for it and go all the way with this, right? And see how it, how it actually works out. And nine times out of 10, when we tried what he suggested, it would, um, 
it would actually end up working, right? It would, it would be a huge improvement. And so I learned an enormous amount about game design um, from working with Kensuke Tanabe. Uh, and it had a huge impact on how I personally think about game design. In fact, Avon Colony, when I ended up designing that, was very much designed along the lines of how would Nintendo design a sci-fi city builder on an alien planet, right? right? And approaching it from that thought instead of the traditional American path of game design of like, okay, what are all the other games that I'm referring to, right? What's, you know, um, City Skylines, SimCity, and then just take those and clone those. And it's, oh, it's game X with, with features Y and Z. It's like, no, at Nintendo, you don't do that. You start with your design pillars. You start with the fundamentals. You look at the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay experience. What is the player learning at each step of the game? What is the player experiencing at each step of the game? How is that working in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish with this design? So was that apparent to you when you first joined Retro in terms of no. the, the, the cultural difference? Or was that something that became apparent no. over time? Yes, it very much became apparent over time. And uh, it was a very unusual experience for me because I was not used to working, you know, at a studio where, you know, you've got, you know, essentially two different um, teams doing giving design leadership. There's the local team inside of Retro, and then there was the SPD group. And the SPD, and it's like the American team would be like, here's all this stuff we're designing. And then the SPD group would come to town and go, okay, here's how I want you to fix all that and rewrite everything, right? Massive changes all across the board, you know? And it was very, um, I don't want to say frustrating, but it took, it took a lot of patience, right? And you really had to be very grown up and professional about it. Like, yes, weeks of my work are getting thrown away, but it's going to be best for the game in the long run. And, and part of it is like Nintendo corporate, right? Didn't really trust retro to just take the ball and run with it down the field in terms of, you know, um, do these guys have the chops to fully make a, a Metroid game on their own, right? Um, and part of what happened with Project X after Metro Metroid Prime 3 shift is that that project was, you know, uh, in, at some levels, I mean, uh, retro trying to prove that it did have the design chops to design a whole new game concept by itself, fitting in with an existing retro, uh, I'm sorry, Nintendo franchise. Hmm. Does that come down to leadership or yeah. is it, or is it cultural differences or what is it, or is it a combination of a lot of things? uh does can you clarify the question uh, does so what come like, down to <clears throat> so same with project x right it, it didn't mm -hmm. really eventuate into anything yeah. is that is that just merely so from do you want, do you want me to tell the story of, of project x yeah yeah sure go ahead <laughs> yeah so project x uh and i have to be very careful about what i say here of course, um, of course. Yeah. for two for two reasons one is that you know, I can't say anything about the Nintendo franchise that this was intended to be tied to. Yeah. Um, that's very confidential information. Um, another thing is that there were a lot of fans of Project X inside Retro Studios, right? I think a lot of the artists in particular looked at Project X and said, this is a game that's going to allow us to create an incredible amount of great art, right? And yes, that was absolutely true. Uh, had it been a solid game design, that could have happened. Uh, but what actually happened on Project X, there were a lot of things going on inside Retro at the time. Um, there were a lot of developers 
Alec and designers uh, tasked with finishing up Metroid Prime Trilogy, so that took away a lot of resources. Uh, it was me and one other engineer working on Project X. Uh, the other engineer was Reese Lewis. Um, and the design docs, so it was a real shock to me. Uh, Project X was a very, very frustrating experience for me because, you know, I have a lot of design skills, right? I'm a multi-class character, engineering and game design, right? Mm. I've done a lot of both. And so when a design needs work, that's a problem for me, right? If a designer comes to me with a good design, hands me a design document and says, here's what I want you to code, put a couple of months of your life into this, and it's a good thing and we'll iterate to make it better, that's cool, right? But when they come to me with a design that is not even coherent, like it doesn't even make sense. Um, and it's like, it's not even fun. Like it's not even pointing to anything that could conceivably be fun, right? And like the thing that makes the most sense is you iterate on that design document, right? You run it past the, the designers. Uh, you, you know, while it's just three, four or five pages of text in this very small design document, you polish that before you waste anyone else's time and resources on it. Right, and don't ask engineers to just, you know, take something almost unintelligible and turn it into, you know, iterate it into something that's marginally fun and marginally playable, right? It's just, it was a very frustrating experience because it was like, I had just gotten done these two Metroid games, you know, Prime 2 and Prime 3, and it was, it was a very professional experience, right? Uh, very solid team. Everybody worked well together. The design was solid. You never had people asking each other, gosh, what's a Metroid game? Is it, you know, first person or third person? Is it an RPG? Is it a strategy game? No, everybody knows what a Metroid Prime game is. So it was all just a question of figuring out the details of, you know, each location, each encounter and so on. Whereas um, this was... Uh, something that just didn't point to anything that made any sense at all. And I tried on several occasions to very diplomatically raise the red flag and say, guys, this is a problem. We need to fix this design. Um, what I didn't realize, and, and unfortunately, I did not get any traction. Um, I was just, my warnings were completely ignored and Project X was ultimately canceled. And I was happy that, honestly, I was, I was happy that it was canceled because, you know, it was an opportunity for Retro to do something better, um, mm. something that, that really had a chance to, to succeed. Um, the, um, yeah. But you know the, the design doc document that you're talking about. How long mm -hmm. is that, well, how long was that document or how long should was, that yeah, document it, be? It was a, maybe a, a five-page document. Right. Okay. You no, know, which not that big. It wasn't like they were some you know mountainous thing, um, but it was five pages of just like things that clearly did not work together. Had basic design flaws in them. And part of what I didn't realize at the time was that Mark Pacini was already planning to go and start Armature Studio. Hmm. He left a, like a week or two before I did. Jack Matthews, the principal engineer, Mark Pacini, the design lead, and Todd Keller, the art lead, you know, all ended up leaving like a, a week before I did to go start Armature Studio because they got a, they had a, at the time they had a deal with Electronic Arts. And so I think a big part of what was happening was that I, when I was raising the red, red flag, 
there was just no motivation for him at the time to take those concerns seriously and you know, fix this project. And it's a tragedy because it was an opportunity if it had been well executed for Retro to really prove to Nintendo that it did have the chops to take more ownership of a design from scratch. But I think it ended up doing the opposite. Right. So in, in the case of like Retro, were there many people that would be able to step into Mark Puccini's shoes if he, like in the case that he moved on? Because obviously you don't want someone with a specific skill set to just up mm -hmm. and leave and then no yeah. one to replace them because then the whole team just yeah. dissipates, doesn't it? <laughs> it yeah, so, <laughs> so, so I don't know. Uh, that's a tough question to answer, right? Because I think no matter what I say, I'm going to end up you know, offending some of the designers that were still there when Mark left. Um, you know, uh, I, I just I just don't know, right? Mm. It's it's well, a I very suppose... very tough job. Those are those are, are tough shoes to fill. Uh, you know, I, I honestly you know had had almost nothing to do with Donkey Kong Country Returns at all. Um, but I do know it was very very successful for Retro and a very polished game. Mm. So, so given your time at Retro, was there was there a time after that where you viewed everything quite differently in terms of? not just design, but I suppose leadership within yeah, within the yeah. industry because of the unorthodox approach, I suppose, that they mm -hmm. view things or how they do things compared to say Western developers. Yeah, so um, my views on leadership did change pretty profoundly, but I wanna be very upfront that that didn't have much to do at all with Retro. Retro, uh, despite the nine months that I worked on Project X, and you know, I've made my feelings clear about that, and I won't beat a dead horse. Yep. Um, my time on the Metroid Prime games was, you know, of an ex very overall a very professional team that executed very very well, not flawlessly, but very well. Um, and uh, and Michael Kelbaugh. One thing I'll say about Michael Kilbaugh is he cares a lot about having a healthy, positive culture, right? Mm. He cares about making sure the team is happy, that, that everyone works well together, that there's a positive culture. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and that's certainly not something that you can say of every studio head in the game industry. Uh, my views on leadership changed pretty dramatically when uh, 2009 through 2012, uh, I got a degree, uh, a master's in, in technology management. Um, it's an MSc degree, uh, sorry, MSc, uh, from University of Pennsylvania in a degree program co-sponsored by the Wharton School of Business, uh, the Executive Master's in Technology Management program. So this program was um, essentially, it was a program for technology people like me who had gotten into positions of management and needed to develop their soft skills, their leadership skills, uh, and their entrepreneurship skills. And while I was there, I had an extraordinary opportunity to study under Professor, Professor Adam Grant, who is uh, an amazing voice in the field of leadership. And his class on organizational behavior and design changed my life. Uh, and they presented this model for here's this validated model that we created at the Wharton School of Bus Business for building high performance teams and these team these principles are universal really across all industries right across all time right it's not just you know video games it's not just whatever it's this is a you know a fundamental principle of teams and there's all of this validated research 
to back this and this whole field of management science that I had never been aware of before. I didn't even know it existed. And so he taught us this whole model. I ended up doing my final paper on that. And that really forced me to take a hard look at all of the different studios I've worked at over my 25 years in the game industry and how the cultures were different, how the outcomes were different. That later inspired me to be one of the, you know, the originator and one of the, the members of the Game Outcomes Project. Uh, there was a, a series of five articles on Gamma Citra, which I think is now called GameDeveloper.com. Uh, but we basically interviewed a couple hundred developers uh, with, with surveys and compared various aspects of video game development studio culture to the outcomes of their projects to find interesting correlations and patterns. So learned a lot from that. And all of it was completely consistent with what I had learned in Adam Grant's course. Because mm. I know you, you did like some aggregate models of the whole crunch thing. Because obviously I've spoken to a lot of game devs and that's probably the thing that comes up the most yes. Yes. in terms of, uh, crunch and it just seems to be this normalized thing at this point yes. and I'm wondering if it's just a case of you don't know what you don't know and it's just something that's been around some tradition yeah. and so people's I, just just yeah. just used to doing it so I really it. yeah I really poked the hornet's nest with the crunch article uh <laughs> some people definitely hate me for that and for questioning the sacred cow that all great teams crunch. Crunch is a huge part of game development and working your butt off doesn't mean being focused. It means spending hundred hours a week at your job and sleeping under your desk in a sleeping bag and, you know, and forgetting your wife's name. Right. And uh, <laughs> it's sort of this thing where I just felt the need to really question, how do we actually know that's true? Right. Where is the, the research to show us that, more time spent on the job is better. One of the horror stories that I heard about Metroid Prime 1 is, uh, and again, I, I had nothing to do with Prime 1, um, but the, the management, which is in the pre-Michael Kalbaugh days, uh, the management ended up basically forcing the entire team to do 80-hour weeks for like the last year in development, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it just got to a point where pretty quickly actually, uh, where it was not adding any additional productivity. And, and one of the things is, you know, sleep deprivation and stress, when you combine those, they really have a profound effect on your performance, especially with very challenging, cog cognitively challenging tasks. You know, it's like this big tower of Jenga bricks. And when you throw a lot of crunch at it, you're relying on brute force and there's every chance. I mean, you're dealing with code bases that have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of code, it's already hard enough to keep all that straight in your head. Um, when you're dealing with something that complex and, and that sophisticated, you do get to a point where sleep de deprivation, you know, and stress really combine to dramatically lower the quality of the code that you can produce and your ability to fix the bugs that are there. And what bothers me the most about crunch isn't the crunch itself, it's the attitude that a lot of developers have that, you know, we're going to crunch no matter what, so just be ready for it, right? Or if a problem comes up, we're gonna use crunch to fix it. It's like, to me, the one, big skill that really separates great leaders from everyone else is when a problem arises on the team, do you understand what's going on? Can you take the time to step in, figure out exactly what's happening, why it's happening, 
and what you need to do to fix it, right? Like, let's say two developers are arguing about something. Bob and Andy don't agree. Okay, talk to Bob, talk to Andy, get both sides of the story. A lot of game developers, a lot of studio leads will go figure out, okay, which one of them has more seniority? Okay, the person with more seniority wins out. Which one of them talks louder and with more confidence? The one with more confidence, we're gonna go with that guy. You know, and it's like, uh, you know, it, you've really got to dig in deeper to understand the issues. And especially for someone like me, I don't like to be feisty. I don't like to get, uh, you know, aggressive, but you really, in a lot of cases, have to push for what you believe in. You have to, you know, in a word, fight for it. And you have to say, this really isn't going to work, right? There are design here flaws in Project X that are going to get this canceled. No amount of engineering is going to improve this project until we fix these underlying design flaws. And I suppose a cultural aspect would be part of the equation too. Let's say like a game developer goes into a studio and then they become a product of the crunch system. Then they mm -hmm. move into a senior position. Then they revalidate that because they grew up with it, right? And so and that's a, it's a and hard that's cycle of, to break. That's, that's what leadership really comes down to, which frankly, a lot of leaders in, in many industries don't understand is when you are a leader, you are responsible for building that culture. You are building that culture with every single thing you do every day, whether you realize it or not. So what you have to do is build it intentionally, right? Continually mold the culture into what it needs to be to succeed, right? There's so many stories of small game development teams that have this awesome culture that have a, you know, their first big success they double the size of their staff, but now they've got all, all these people on board who don't trust the existing staff and aren't are meshed in well. They're not really a culture fit with the existing staff. And so everything that was great about the culture starts to fade away. Mm. So in hindsight, when you look back at all the times you did crunch, can you see mm. where all the flaws were, where all the holes were, which probably led to that outcome? Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of different kinds of crunch. Um, forced crunch was only occasionally a part of it. Um, okay. Mostly I crunched myself to death uh, when I was young enough and stupid enough to do that. Um, and it, when I thought it was actually helping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think, I think crunch, the thing about crunch though, is it, it really is a symptom, right? It's not the underlying problem. The problem is poor leadership. Right, not not universally. There's there's certainly some studios with great leadership, um, but overall in the game industry, it continues to boggle my mind how like we have these ridiculously talented artists, we have unbelievable genius level programmers who can optimize code, you know, to within a fraction of an inch of its life. You know, we have super talented animators and sound designers and game designers, all of these people who are you know unbelievably profoundly talented you know, content creators who in many cases are more talented than the special effects people who work in, in the film industry, um, just my opinion. Uh, but then the leadership is just like, you know, holy cow, they let their teams down over and over and over again and very often don't see that they're doing it. And you have these, I, you know, I've seen many cases where you have this train wreck of a project it's like, this should be a huge wake up call. And I end up getting so many lessons, again, not speaking about retro here, but train wreck of a project, you end up learning so many lessons from this project, but then you look at the people who were in charge of that train wreck 
And then their next project is a train wreck and the next one and the next one, because they're, and the stories that you hear from people working at those studios are like, this guy is repeating the exact same mistakes. How can you do that? How can you go through all that and learn so little from it? it, it it's mind boggling to me. And, and a big part of it is the industry as a whole, I think does not respect leadership, right? They don't see how difficult it is, how complex it is, how challenging it is, and the amount of training that you need to give people when they step into this job, the importance of picking the right kinds of people who can really step into that role and do a good job with it, right? Too often it's, oh, this guy is a great artist. He's our top artist and other people respect him. This you know, lady is our, our chief engineer and she's fabulous and everybody loves her. So we'll make her a leader, but they don't necessarily have the leadership skills so that when they get promoted, they're still trying to do their new job the way that they were doing their old job. And right. then they don't understand why things keep going wrong because but it requires a completely different skill set. Is there a fear of conflict though? Like say if a leader does something wrong, well, one, mm -hmm. do they acknowledge that they've made a mistake? Because mm -hmm. if you don't acknowledge it, then you can't fix it. And two, yeah. um, like, is can the team challenge the person, or does it That's end up being? Can yeah. you can you can you raise the red flag? Now, when I worked at when I started Mothership Entertainment, um, one of the things to make Avon Colony, one of the things we did is we printed our values and had them hanging on the wall, right? Right. Um, I won't go into them too much. It's part of what my upcoming book is about. It references these actually. Um, but uh, one of our values was when you see a problem approaching, raise the red flag, right? If you see something that you think is gonna be a risk to the project or the team, you have the right to raise your hand and say, this is a problem, we need to do something about it. And so every team meeting, you know, anybody who felt had a concern could raise the red flag and say, I think this is a problem. The direction we're heading with this is, is a you know, big deal. You know, we need more marketing, whatever, right? And so I would have to take it seriously. And very often they would raise the red flag on issues that they believed, you know, usually correctly, you know, could be significant problems if we did not address them. Um, and it's interesting also that you mentioned fear of conflict. One of the things that I talk about in the Game Outcomes Project that I worked on, uh, you know, that study uh, of, game developers and how culture relates to project outcomes. One of the things I talk about is Patrick Lencioni's uh, excellent management book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he has this, this pyramid model, right? Of here are the five dysfunctions, right? And fear of conflict is one of those five key dysfunctions where if people are too afraid to speak out, too afraid to say, hey, wait a second, the emperor has no clothes, then those problems are gonna spiral out of control. Right. Also, if, you know, if leaders are too afraid to take people seriously, right, right, like me raising my hand, which I did many times on Project X and saying, there are serious problems with the game design, you know, a five page design document should not have this many major, major fundamental, obvious issues, right? That needs to be taken seriously. The problem is with creative people, though, is don't they have fragile egos? <laughs> so... You sometimes, you yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah. suppose there's different degrees of it, but obviously, some people might take it personally if, if they feel like their work is being attacked because yeah. they associate part of their identity to their work. So yes. they feel like they're being attacked personally. Yeah. Well, part of leadership is, you know, getting beyond that, right? 
as a leader, you really need to leave your ego on the table, right? And it shouldn't matter who the idea came from, whether it's yours or somebody else's. It's a question of, is it a good idea? Does it fit with our design pillars? Is it feasible? You know, can we actually make it happen? Um, you know, yeah. Mm. Well, that stuff comes from the top down, right? It, it ripples yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, Satori Iwada during, I think when mm. the Wii U was failing, right? He took like a 50% pay cut. Most mm. CEOs would never do that, right? Yeah. 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 But I would think that, time, yeah. yeah, well, it should be more commonplace. Yeah. I would feel. Yeah. And, and it's just like, you look at things like uh, what's going on at Activision Blizzard and that whole yeah. brouhaha, and it's just unbelievably mind-boggling the way that the scandal has imploded, but it really is not, you know, strictly a scandal about sexual harassment, which, you know, obviously that's horrible, but it's a symptom of a much deeper problem, which is this issue of leadership in the game industry. And this is one of the reasons that I just don't do engineering anymore, right? I don't write code anymore. I got to, I did it for more than 25 years. I got to be really good at it, but the industry doesn't have a problem with a shortage of engineers, right? The problem is a shortage of leadership. And until that problem gets fixed, you know, that's going to hinder our progress. But the thing, the weird thing that I find is it's obviously apparent that it's there. I mean, there's always news articles about it, but mm -hmm. it just seems like nothing happens. Like it falls on yeah. deaf ears. And I don't yeah. know, like, I mean, do, do they hold courses for leadership within the game development teams like some of those like day project courses or something yeah sort of i mean certainly at games developers conference some of the talks are you know focused on leadership many of them are, are quite good um there are uh you know a couple consultants working in the game industry you know but a big part of it is just like once people get into positions of leadership um it can be very hard for them to leave, right? Especially if a project is successful enough to keep going. Um, and so you can end up with a lot of cases where like, okay, this guy owns 100% of the company. So his word is law. You're never gonna get him to, you know, have somebody else take on more of a leadership role because he insists on micromanaging his team. Um, what are you gonna do about that? it's not going to change this particular company because it has this leader who's fully in power. You know, if you cannot get him to change himself or promote somebody else to be the guy doing the day-to-day -day leadership tasks, um, you know, and let that guy do his job, then, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, but I mean, I a, mean, a big part of it is, you know, these, these public companies, at least they do have, you know, shareholders, they have boards who they are liable to. So certainly, you know, these sorts of things can cause changes of leadership in that case, especially if it starts to impact the company's bottom line. Um, so, and I think also a lot of game journalists, you know, are aware of the problem, but they seem to be pushing the angle of, oh, we just need unions unions will fix the problem and you know that might help with collective bargaining a bit but i really don't think that's going to fix the underlying problem of, of leadership right 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 <clears throat> but surely must something must be able to be done i mean mm -hmm. i mean you have to it sounds to me like the echo chamber just needs to mm -hmm. somehow stop but yeah. i don't i don't know how you do that because you can't fix something that if, if people don't want to fix it, like if the leader yes, is yeah. not willing to acknowledge anything, then yeah. how are you and supposed it, to break it? 
if you're working at a company like the one I referred to, where there's a guy that has 100% ownership of the company, and you know, you you really have to get to a point where you say, okay, I've tried nudging the leadership in the right direction, but there is a point where you stick your neck out too much, your head's going to get cut off. Uh, my dear friend Andy O'Neill, who I worked with uh, on Metric Prime Games, yeah, he was an engineer uh, working on physics rendering, a lot of stuff like that. Uh, on all three metric crime games, sadly passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, but he had a wonderful expression, vote with your feet. Uh, if you really are unhappy with the way things are going, just find a better company. That's the best thing to do. Because hmm. there would have been people, I suppose, within um, Retro as well that would have advocated for certain... Like I heard that uh, Mark A. Hutchinson was one who was mm -hmm. always going to town for the, for the team as mm -hmm. well. He'd always yeah. um, stick up. But obviously, I, I suppose those sort of individuals are very few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hay Cushinson, wonderful man. Um, he sadly passed away shortly after Metroid Prime 3 shipped. Um, my understanding, I never really saw Mark raise too much of a ruckus while I was there. Uh, I think because the, the leadership was so much better than it had been on Prime 1. Uh, right. I think he was probably causing a ruckus more on Prime 1 <laughs> which I didn't work on, so. Yeah, yeah. So in your experience with like, say someone like mm -hmm. Michael Calbor, mm -hmm. like what would he do to obviously try and install faith in, in leadership mm -hmm. and to keep the morale high um, within within the team as mm -hmm. well? And, and mm -hmm. obviously have measures in place to prevent ridiculous crunch and, and all yeah. of that jazz. Yeah, yeah there, there was a certain amount of crunch. It never got to be too ridiculous uh, at Retro. Um, it was a lot of things. It was who we hired, you know. Uh, we, mm -hmm. didn't, we didn't really hire jerks. Um, the, uh, he treated people with respect, right? He didn't threaten anyone. He never intimidated anyone. He never um, looked down on it and denigrated anybody's work. Um, you know, he would put out fires, he would not start them. Uh, and there's a ton to be said for that because when a leader gives respect the way Michael did, everybody else is going to respect each other as well, right? Because the leader sets the tone for everybody. Yeah. Do you think there's like too much in terms of the hierarchical structure where the leader doesn't look to the, the team as his equal, even though that you are pretty much all equals you're just in different roles well so that's that's a difficult question right um you know you say equal but what is what does equal really mean right it's been interesting it's an interesting question because I've, I've been looking at blizzard lately and blizzard's values you know um and one of their values is all voices matter right and that sounds really nice because it's like hey if i say something you know my voice matters you know, and people are going to listen, but, but think about it, right? If I go to an, an artist and I say, oh, this needs to be look more red over here. I'm not an artist. My voice probably doesn't really matter compared <laughs> to his, right? Or if he comes to me and says, hey, uh, I don't like the, what you're doing inside your for loop there. It doesn't look very efficient, right? I'm going to be like, you're not a, you're not a coder, right? Um, we all have these different disciplines, right? We all have different levels of experience in our disciplines and tier teams do need a certain amount of hierarchy to be efficient. Um, you know, having said that, a lot of it is, you know, big part of the problem of leading a game development team is you have so many of these disciplines 
that are, you know, have completely different perspective, have these interlocking needs and goals. And very often you'll get somebody from one um, discipline who's, you know, primary experience is from one discipline who then has a difficult time interacting with the other disciplines, right? And is not really qualified to be working in those other disciplines. One of the things that I did when I was in Mothership is I recognized I'm not an artist, right? I'm not qualified to be an art lead, right? We had two artists on our team. We were in a position where we couldn't really make either of them the art lead, but I was very upfront about, I'm not gonna give you these detailed concept sketches of what all the different science fiction buildings and thrones and alien creatures and landscapes and alien colonies should look like. I'm not an artist, but what I am gonna do is I'm gonna go to you and I'm gonna say, here's what, the overall feeling that we're trying to give uh, from this piece of art, here's, you know, its behavior inside the game, you know, here's essentially just a written specification, but I want you to bring your creativity to it, right? And I'm not going to micromanage you. Um, one of the, the things that I, I discuss, you know, essentially um, bring out in, in my book, which is going to be out later this year, is you've got these two teams that are led by these two very, very different game developers. But one of them is very much an engineer all the way down to the core. And he has a very, very hard time managing the creatives on his project, the designers and the artists. Whereas the other team is run by a game designer who has a very difficult time with making decisions around technology, so. Mm. So let's let's and talk about let's all talk. of which is based on directly on personal experience, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So let's talk about your book, The Four Swords, like the the genesis of the idea. Um, I'm I'm keen to know where that came from. Was this yeah. something that was just in your head for a, a number of years before you did anything about it? Yeah, no, actually, um, this. Uh, so during COVID, um, I was. I got an email from a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, Georgetown is where I did my undergrad back in 1994. Um, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this online class for people wanting to write their first book. Why don't you join? I thought, I, you know, I've got nothing better to do. The world is shut down right now. Um, so I signed up for this course. It was taking forever to really get started. And, and I think I had like half the book written in first draft form before the first class session had even started. Right. Wow. And this whole intricate structure of these four main characters working at two different game studios and and just like, yeah, it was it was one of those things where it's like writing is so much easier than coding, right? They use a lot of the same skills because both of them are about building these extremely elaborate structures in your head and then translating them into essentially a linear form, right? Mm. But it's nowhere near as challenging as writing code. Because with writing code, you've got this arcane language, C++ or whatever else, where you've got to master the rules. You've got this compiler that's going to bitch at you mercilessly for any little syntax error you get wrong. You know, no matter how closely you're going to pay, you're paying attention. You're going to get millions of those a day. You know, or hundreds. Um, and uh, you know, and you've got all of this complexity, and it's got to be perfect. Whereas with a book, you know, it's just like you can pretty much write whatever and you know, and then take your time and polish it and endlessly tweak it and iterate it. And um, it's just, it really is so much easier than writing code, but it's also very interesting to me how, to what extent many of the same skills apply, because when you're an engineer, you get very good at building these 
insanely elaborate structures in your head and remembering all this stuff and then translating it to linear format, which is a lot of what writing is. Uh, so anyway, I, I signed up for the book writing course um, and the, uh, that was like you know, uh, October of 2020. Uh, my mother passed away in April of 2021. And so it was the kind of thing where I was at a point where I should have been getting ready to, to publish the book. But of course, because of that happening, I had to take a couple months off. And you know, by the time uh, I was ready to start up again, things weren't clicking. So I decided to, to stop working with the publisher that they had set me up with. I had a number of different editors throughout the process. Uh, but it was, it was honestly frustrating because all the feedback they gave me was just, wow, this is fantastic. I love the way this ends. And, you know, every chapter ends perfectly. And, and wow, you know, this, the, you know, it's just like, okay, but, but what do you like, not like about it? Right. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, what's the reason it's taking so long to publish this book is we decided to go way over the top with the audiobook. This game has, oh, sorry, oh. this book has dozens of different characters and, I decided that it wouldn't make sense to have me trying to do all the voices of the different characters. I can do some of them kind of okay, but I can't do all of them well, right? And there are definitely voice actors out there who can do far better with any of them than I can do, right? And so what, what we did is uh, like November of last year, I did my initial read through of the entire book as the narrator and all the different characters all 79 chapters. Then we cast all, you know, 25 or so different characters and basically had them do their lines and then splice those in over my lines. And so it's more like an audio play. And so it's going to be great because when you're listening to the audiobook, you'll be able to immediately tell, tell, oh, that's Jake, that's Tim, that's Allison, that's Bentley, that's Mickey, that's Phil, whoever, because they're, they're all designed to have very, very distinct voices. Uh, so you can instantly tell them apart in your head. And then we can cut out a lot of that. You know, he said, Tim agreed, Allison replied, and so on later on in the book, once you know who everybody is. And so it'll just flow a lot more nicely. Um, so we've been spending a lot of time doing that. We did have to recast like 10% of the actors. We had to, uh, we decided to replace in, you know, a, a British character and an Irish character with actual British and Irish actors just to improve the quality. A couple other characters had to, had to get redone. So that's gonna take like another month or two. Uh, then we've got to do music and sound effects, audio mastering and leveling and timing. And yeah, so it probably won't be out till the end of the year, sometime in the second half of the year, who knows when. Right, right. But the but, audiobook is gonna be so much better for it. And I'm definitely gonna recommend when people do buy the book, they listen to it in audiobook format because it's absolutely designed for audiobook. Well, it sounds like that's where the bulk of the time and probably the money is going, right? So, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So it makes sense. So it, what's after this book's done, do you have any idea of what you want to do? Like, do you want to get more into like doing lecturing maybe at universities on game design? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. So if I, uh, I probably wouldn't lecture on game design. Um, I certainly don't have, yeah, uh, I might lecture on, on leadership, you know, if I'm invited, I'd, I'd certainly consider it, but, uh, but I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm semi-retired right now. So, uh, I'm taking things one at a time, uh, working in a lot of other, other things that I won't mention here, but, um, yeah, but we'll see. Yeah. So in, in terms of your, your whole career, is there something in particular you're most proud of? Yeah. So uh, certainly I'm super proud of the Aiden Colony. Hmm. Um, 
you know, Avon Colony science fiction city builder game uh, released in the middle of, I think at the same day, released the same day as Fortnite, uh, middle of 2017, um, released on PC, Xbox, and uh, PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Um, so we went through absolute hell in the first year and a half of development on Avon Colony. Um, I, it's best if I don't tell those stories, but it was, uh, we eventually found a new publisher, uh, Team 17 in the UK uh, offered us a, a solid publishing deal. They did a fantastic job of porting the game to Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Um, and even though we had a, a fairly rough launch, uh, you know, we spent nine months iterating and tweaking that and polishing it and uh, really, really happy with how the game came out. And uh, the people who take the time to really play that game and approach it with an open mind um, really end up loving it. Um, so it's, it's um, yeah, really happy with how that turned out. Also really proud of the Helios boss on Metroid Prime 3 because that was, you know, really me coming up with this idea of, wouldn't it be cool if there was a creature that was basically an intelligent swarm of these flying robotic birds, had an artist at Retro mock up a very low poly count, very low bone density, you know, bird, robot bird model, and then took a test room and I was like, here's a tornado, here's a sphere, right? Here's this ring, right? And then showed that to Mike Wicken and I was like, here's what I'd like to do. You know, if you have like 128 of these flying robots, we can have it do all these different forms, right? The sphere could like roll down, you know, the arena toward the player and try and crush you. The ring can like energize and then fire at the player through the middle, um, have a, you know, tornado. And then we ended up also doing like a giant humanoid form that just tries to stomp the player. Um, so, and then in between all that, it just sort of like, you know, the, the, uh, the robots will just like fly out into this loose formation before deciding, okay, here's the form I'm gonna go into next and then go into that form. So that ended up working out really, really well. It was a very original boss hmm. and fun, in, I think. In, in regards to AI, is there sometimes instances where you try to make the AI look smarter than it actually is? Yes, all the time. Almost like pulling the wool over people's eyes. All so, the time. Yeah. Yes. Is that pretty yeah. much AI in, in a nutshell? Yeah, I, I mean, game game AI is um, just creating, as far as you know, creating NPCs is concerned, and especially enemy NPCs. It's creating enemies that are fun to interact with. One of my biggest frustrations is in the game industry. Um, it, game AI has so little to do very often with, with real AI. And there's almost this attitude, uh, you know, in the game AI in, industry of like, we just need dumb enemies who are gonna shoot back at the player and, and you kill them and that's fine, right? And like, that's like like playing through Diablo Immortal. Like all the enemies are just like, Arr, I'm a zombie, I see the player, run, walk towards them. Maybe sometimes they do a special attack or two, right? And it's just like, you know, but the, so much cooler things are possible, right? Uh, you look at what Jeff Orkin did with Fear. Uh, I think it's, you know, that was first encounter Assault Recon and he had this whole intricate planning based system and uh, this incredibly uh, intelligent, and also fun AI to play with. Um, that was at, at the time that was the, one of the best 
AI systems ever made in a video game easily. And it's one of those things where like, I would rather, I, I remember at one point I had an interview with a certain very famous game development studio up in Dallas. And, uh, you know, I was, I was sitting down for lunch uh, with the head of the studio who shall not be named. And, uh, you know, he basically just sneered and, and was like, you know, my, my attitude is like, AI doesn't need to be smart. It just needs to be fun. Right. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, well, well yeah, obviously. Can it be right? both? But it, yeah, but you can make it more fun by making it smart. And that's not going to make it super hard necessarily, right? If you have an enemy that's like, okay, this enemy is doing more intelligent things than your typical enemy. Now we can do other, make other changes, tuning changes that is going to make that enemy, you know, better balanced, reduce their accuracy of the weapons, right? Reduce the damage that the bullets do, whatever. Reduce the frequency with which, with they, with which they fire at you. Um, give them fewer hit points, things like that. I would rather make characters that seem a little more human, seem a little more intelligent, seem to have a little more creativity. Not that they're trying to outwit the player necessarily, just that there's something a little more than just like I'm this zombie that walks toward the player and my purpose in life is to die, you know, make something that's a little more fun to interact with. And then you can tune everything else accordingly, you know, to make sure the difficulty level stays the same. Hmm. So when you were in the trenches and you're, you're, you're making a game, you're working on the AI, but obviously AI evolves so quickly in terms of the tools and everything. Mm -hmm. were you still able to try and keep up with all the the new technologies and the the evolution of ai and how it was coming about even even when you're making games so i don't know that game ai is necessarily evolving like that right uh not necessarily not necessarily i mean certainly the metroid prime games were all fairly patterned bosses right um I mean, AI itself, outside of game AI, is evolving, right? We were talking yeah. before the interview about art generators like Midjourney and Dolly 2. I mean, those are just like, that's, you know, quote unquote, real AI. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a continuum, right? Uh, I remember when Mike, you interviewed Mike Wicken, um, he basically, you know, suggested that all game AIs come down to, you know, finite state machines. I want to say that is an oversimplification. Um, some AIs are essentially finite state machines, but there are a lot of other tools like behavior trees, you know, that are used in AI development. But there's also a lot of, you know, I hate the term fuzzy logic. Right. Um, because it's not really fuzzy, right? But nonlinear decision making or nonlinear decision modeling, right? Where you're taking multiple inputs into a decision and combining them in a way that involves more mathematics, right? And more of you know, a subtle thing where you're saying, you know, if here's X and here's Y, and if it's inside this circle, then we'll do the behavior, otherwise we won't, right? So one of the things that I did on a lot of the Metroid Prime games is I kind of, I would say I had an influence on how, you know, a lot of the enemies were developed uh, on Prime 2 and 3. Uh, sorry, a lot of the boss encounters were, were done, you know, because of how I did the first Dark Samus battle you know, and I showed that to the other engineers. And, you know, essentially you'd have this idle state. Um, essentially the way that they were trying to do a lot of the boss designs was, you know, 
on on prime one and i think early in prime two is they they were had this state machine system right it's good starting this day go to this state if this happens do this if that happens do that um and i know there was sort of a push i think on prime one to get the designers to be explicit about designing the state machines themselves i remember there was some i don't want to call it conflict but there was this sort of a thing between mike Wick and ellis yeah, a back and forth, let's say. It was, it was professional, right? Between Alex Quinones, who was one of, one of the other engineer, AI engineers. He worked on Quadraxis uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of others. Um, and Mike Wicken, right? And it was this thing where, you know, Alex, you know, is a very technical guy, very talented engineer, um, but tends to be pretty literal, right? And Mike would joke, like, he's a robot, right? I tell him to do this thing, and then he goes and does exactly that, and then... <laughs> And then Alice is like, well, why don't you just write the whole flowchart, right? And, and it's this it's this thing where like the designer wants to be able to just say, I, you know, I kind of want this, 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 and this, and make it work, you know, whereas I was able to go to go to the engineers and just take whatever spec they gave me and just make it work, right? And in, instead of trying to make, you know, it literally too literally, you know, this flowchart, this hierarchical state machine, I would say, I've got my idle state, right? That's what I'm doing whenever I'm not doing anything else. And so I'm spending in between all the different major behaviors that I do, all the attacks or whatever other things that I do, I'm in this idle state, right? So when the Dark Samus is swirling around on the battlefield in first, you know, first and second encounters in, in Metroid Prime 2, um, she's in this idle state. And then you can look at all these other behaviors and take a bunch of different factors into consideration. And again, I hate the term fuzzy logic because it's not really fuzzy, but it's nonlinear decision-making where you're taking multiple variables into account of like how late in the battle is it? What is Dark Samus's health? What's the player's health? Maybe you're looking at the ratio of the player's health versus Dark Samus's health. You know, where is, is the player in front of Dark Samus or behind Dark Samus based on those factors and a lot of others, we can come up with essentially a score for each. Be- oh, also, how recently did I do a certain attack? Because you don't want to just be repeating the same attack over and over again. And so if Dark Samus just did a certain attack, you don't want to do the same one twice in a row if you can help it. Sometimes that's okay, but if you keep doing the same one over and over, that's not good. So track maybe like the last three or four attacks that you did. Um, but you take that into account as well, and then you build up, here are the scores of all these different attacks, and then let's pick the highest score. Of all the bosses you did, in terms of the AI, was there one that's just, was the biggest pain in the ass for you? Just like... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, um, so let me see, you know, I made a list the other day just to remind myself of all the bosses that I worked on because it was so long. Yeah, Um, there is a list online, and I did read it, yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's a lot, and it's a lot. Yeah, Grenchler, Lumite, Sandworm, Dark Alpha Splinter, Chica, Dark Samus 1, 2, and 3, Grapple Guardian, Meta Ridley, Defense Drone, Korak and Beast Rider, Bounty Hunter, Rundus, Helios. Um, yeah, um, certainly the, the Sandworm was a pain in the butt to optimize. Helios was also a little challenging to optimize. You know, But the most frustrating one was just the final Dark Samus battle in Prime 3, just because there was so much rework involved in that one, and it got thrown out twice completely so yeah but i suppose that was just an anomaly like that wouldn't happen often right where boss designs are completely thrown out and then you start from scratch multiple times yeah yeah i I would say that that was one of the few times that that really happened to that extent 
on a boss. Uh, Tanabe-san would always insist on a lot of rework on a boss and ask for more features and changes to the existing features and balancing and tuning changes. Um, one, of, one of the interesting stories that I heard from Prime 3, um, and this doesn't relate to, to you know, boss development, but just regarding SPD's style of interacting with, uh, with Retro Studios, um, was uh, the designers were working on Pirate Planet on Prime 3 and Tanabe-san had not yet seen Pirate Planet. And they'd been working on it for like two months and felt like it was close to finished. Uh, and again, this did not involve me directly and it is secondhand information. So I don't yeah, know yeah. exactly how accurate it is. So, so take it with a grain of salt. But um, my understanding is they showed Pirate Planet to Tanabe-san on a Friday uh, and he didn't look happy. And so he and, he and Risa were in their offices playing through Pirate Planet. And then first thing Monday morning, designers get called into a meeting with Tanabe-san. He basically goes over it on a whiteboard of like, here's the new Pirate Planet. And he has taken literally every single room and every single corridor and hooked it up to a different room in a different corridor. Every boss is in a different place. Every weapon pickup is in a different place. The whole thing has just been completely rearranged. I mean, now it had a modular system, right? The doors in all the Metroid Prime games, as well as any Metroid game, made it really easy to sort of hook up doors and hallways to, to new rooms and hallways and stuff like that but it was still you can imagine it was a little mind-blowing like you spent <laughs> two months of like here's our design for pirate planet now this whole thing is getting completely redone from scratch and somebody flipped the tea table on you is it true and um yeah so if you can clarify this i'm not sure but so say if if you're trying to do a pitch for a design or something in in a meeting with a typical western developer you might make references to other games like, oh, we want to do something similar to this, like this game, like Hero, um, Horizon Zero Dawn or yes. Call of Duty. But in a Nintendo meeting, you do not reference any that is, game. That is, that is absolutely true. That is one of the things um, about working with Nintendo that many, you know, I, I tell American game developers this and they just can't believe it because American game developers are always like, Oh, it's Call of Duty meets Halo with, you know, the, the weapons of Final Fantasy or, or whatever, right? Um, you know, it, it's Fortnite meets Minecraft. And I mean, Fortnite already kind of is Minecraft in a way. Um, <laughs> but you, you get my point, right? Yeah, 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 of um, course. You know, whereas, you know, at Nintendo, it's, you just don't do that. You design based on, no, we're not talking about their game. What their game did doesn't matter. The entire context of anybody else's games in the universe doesn't matter to Nintendo. Right, all that matters to Nintendo is this particular game you're working on. What are the design pillars? What is the player experience? What are we trying to do? So, so honestly, that was one of the things that frustrated me when you know I was working on Aven Colony uh, because I had adopted fully adopted those design principles, right? And so initially. Again, not going to name any names, but we were working with a publisher initially who was incapable of seeing anything other than through the lens of, oh, this other game does this, therefore we have to do it. This other game is going to do this and it'll be out same time as your game. And so therefore we have to do it. Well, if, if it's going to be out the same time as our game and have that feature, we should try to differentiate ourselves by not doing that, right? Yeah. So. Makes sense. That makes yeah. perfect sense. And um, because in Western Western development, usually there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of legal documentation well a lot of documentation in general whereas nintendo is more about prototypes yeah as well yeah 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 Yeah, uh their motto is the game is the design document um well i wouldn't say that that's their motto but essentially that is implicitly the way they're acting i've heard and i've heard other other developers say that as well and and certainly i mean there's i think it's it's sort of like a u-shaped curve of like there's a certain level of documentation where too little of it is harmful and a certain level of documentation where too much of it is harmful. Um, And one of the things that they did at Retro was they had specs for each individual weapon, each environment, each boss encounter that would typically only be a couple of pages, but it would describe the things that were important for that particular feature, right? So Dark Sam's boss encounter, I think was like a three or four page design document with like, here are the attacks that we've got in mind. Here's what we're trying to get across of this battle. Here's what the boss looks like, how she moves and, and, and so on. And that worked out really, really well. On the other end, I do think for a lot of designers that do take that approach and don't necessarily have Nintendo's design skills, some of the developers that I worked with before Retro, um, they, it was, really you know saying that the game is the design document was very much an excuse for seat of the pants game design where it was like oh i just played this awesome game last night we got to put some of those features in our game right <laughs> and god you know and, and just constant change because they couldn't agree on they couldn't just pick something and stick with it and grow it to become something great you know and, and iterate on that at the same time there's such a thing as too much design dots um i remember um at a certain point back in, I think it was 2001, um, shortly after Ultima Online 2 was canceled, um, I went to the game's funeral. Um, and it was somewhere on Lord British's estate by the shores of Lake Travis. Um, I, I didn't know most of the people there, but it was basically, they had this big bonfire and they had a, like a six foot tall stake. And then they, took this huge stack of design documents and impaled it on the stake and then set it on fire. And we're all drinking beers and watching the design documents burn. And then I realized that entire stack of design documents, that is one copy of the design documents, right? That they literally wrote that much documentation for Ultima Online 2, yeah. Why? I don't, I don't yeah. understand it. I don't yeah. understand why you would need to be that well, you, you wouldn't. thorough or you would, you wouldn't, you, wouldn't. That's, yeah. you know, uh, it, it, it's like, uh, what's the saying about where, you know, uh, plans are useless, but planning is essential or, or maybe it's something like no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Right. And that's true of game development as well. So when you have a huge, massive design document like that, no one's ever going to read that. It's never actually going to make it into development. You've got to do it, you know, where you're a lot smaller, more agile, more nimble. You have these smaller docs. You can say, build this little thing to start and you build that. And then you see how it works. You get all the bugs out you get it good, you get it solid. Now the next thing, and now this feature, and now this feature, now this feature, now this feature, right? Um, not of like, here's, you know, um, a 10,000 page design document on with a backstory for each of our magical weapons and armor and, and 500 pages on how the jewel crafting system works. And uh, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't work like that. Mm. I mean, part of the reason why I like the Metroid Prime trilogy is it feels like it's a fusion of Western 
and Eastern design in some ways. I don't know if you fully agree with that yeah, since you're in the yeah. trenches. Oh, absolutely. In a lot of ways it is. And a lot of that came from, I think, the interaction of the, you know, Western designers at Retro and the, you know, Nintendo designers. Um, you know, there are influences of Halo uh, in Metroid Prime 3 Corruption because yeah. a couple of designers on the team were big Halo fans. And that uh, as I understand it, caused some problems with Tanabe-san because, of course, he did not care about Halo. Um, but like the first Dark Samus battle was our attempt to create a boss encounter that felt more like a typical, you know, Western shooter game. Felt more like a, a Call of Duty or, or something like that, and give more of that feeling. You know, we didn't try to sell to Tanabe as, oh, these other games do this. It was much more of like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had a boss? who did these things and we'll, we'll try it and see if it works. So. Hmm. Do you think that would also help if there was more of a, I suppose an overlap where both, I suppose, Eastern designers and Western designers were able to collaborate more because that might yeah. help with some of the, it might have a knock on effect in terms of, I suppose, gain, gaining a different perspective on things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms and of leadership you, as well, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And you do gain uh, an enormous amount of perspective working with Nintendo's designers. How well that applies to other Asian game designers and Korean game designers, Chinese, or even other Japanese designers, I have no idea. But um, certainly working with somebody like Tanabe dramatically changed the way that I view every aspect of uh of game design but how you know how you make that collaboration happen i'm not sure uh it was certainly very challenging for the retro studios team to be in this position of work on this feature tanabe comes in and, and changes you know half of it you know work on this other feature tanabe comes in and rewrites it from scratch work on pirate planet he rearranges it totally work on dark samus totally changes the battle right that that can be uh, that's a difficult way to interact. There's probably a better way to do that. I'm not going to suggest anything, but there's there's probably a better way to do that. Um, do, I certainly he... do. I certainly do wish that a lot of the designers at Retro had just been taken to SPD headquarters and given the training that they need to become actual Nintendo game designers. Right. Right. That would have been awesome. Right. If all of those designers. I would kill, of course, to have that level of training myself. If all of them had just been flown out for, you know, six months to a year, however long it takes to give them the zen of here's how you design Nintendo games, that would have been awesome. So did you make any attempts to try and learn any Japanese while you were there? No. no. Nah. We, we had a, we had a full-time translator on staff um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I just felt like that wouldn't be a good use of my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, hey, I'll I'll wrap up there. This has uh, been an awesome, awesome time, uh, Great. Paul. I very, very much appreciate it. I've I've learned a lot. Um, Glad you liked it. You have a you have a lot of wisdom to to pass on. I feel so. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. I like to think so, but we'll see. Well, there's a lot of your stuff online. I mean, there's there's um various presentations you've done and other podcasts you've done and chats that's why i think like yeah if you did like a university lecture it might be good yeah. let me know if you do one because i enjoy i enjoy doing that so I'll, I'll let you know if i get any invitations after this podcast yeah so your your book um four swords 
The Four Swords, a parable of leadership, video games, and dead dragons. Yeah. It's be out sometime in the second sometime. half of this year, but we got a lot of work still to do on the audiobooks, so probably September at the earliest, I'm guessing, on all formats. Yeah. So if anyone wants to keep up to date with you to see the progress or when it's coming out and all that, what's what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, the uh, best thing to do is connect with me on LinkedIn mm. uh, or follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a Twitter account that I made for the book. The Twitter account is Four Swords Book. And it's spelled out, it's not the number four, it's, it's spelled out as a four-letter word, uh, Four Swords Book. So I will be promoting it there once it's ready. Cool. All right. Well, um, I'll put all that in the description, and uh, when it comes out, I'll I'll promote it as well and, and push Great. it out there. But um, really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks again, Paul. That is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And uh, until next time, stay safe.